John Stott uh, reflected on what was wrong with the church today. At the end of his life, after a ministry which had spanned the globe, he said the most neglected theme in Jesus' teaching is the teaching that we should be different from the world around us. Who is the greatest? We've been talking about in our previous sermons. Who is the one who is prepared to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus? Today, who is prepared to take seriously the whole business of forgiveness, of forgiving others? And for many of us, that's where the rubber really does hit the road. We all have some memory of being wronged, and many of those memories cause deep scars. You know, at the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland, the IRA reduced a, uh, released a bomb in the middle of the Remembrance Day parade in Enniskillen, killing 12 people and injuring hundreds of others in the crowd. Later in the day, a devout Christian man whose 20-year-old daughter had died holding his hand as they lay trapped in the rubble gave an interview to BBC News. I bear them no grudge, he said. What a man. I watched another clip of him, of him being interviewed by Terry Wogan in a chat show on Remembrance Sunday the following year. And he said, I still feel the same. I bear them no grudge. Those who had murdered his daughter. A historian, a Northern Ireland historian, has written no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact all around the world. And my question to myself and to you this morning is, are we like that? Could we show that degree of forgiveness to all those who have wronged us? So let's look at Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. Turn to Matthew 18 on page 985 if you'd like to. And it might be helpful to have the sermon outline, outline handy uh, in front of you, both uh, as you follow the pattern through the, through the front page and we refer to one or two quotes on the back. And the first thing I want to talk about is that the, the, the parable itself shows a servant who didn't get it. In this story of Jesus' parable, there's a master and a servant. And the servant at the center of the story, later on in the story, is owned, owed 100 denarii. And that, in our money, is what he would have got if he had worked four months that would have been his pay. But what he owed the master 
was 10,000 denarii, not 100. A million times more than he was owed. It would have been impossible for him to pay the debt. It would take him 4,000 years to earn that much. But when his master frees him of the debt, he immediately goes and shows no mercy to his fellow servant. What does that tell you about him? It tells me that he has no idea of the enormity of his master's generosity, his grace and love in writing off the debt. His God is clearly wealth, the acquisition of money, greed, what can I get? Never, what can I give? And in his life and experience, it seems that relationships and love don't figure. He wants his money no matter what that does to his fellow servant. He has no understanding of the sacrificial love his master has shown to him in cancelling the debt. So what does the master do? He throws him into prison and see he can pay back all his debt. 4,000 years of it. But the chilling thing for me is Jesus' comment at the end. And in verse 35, he says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother, your sister, from your heart. Jesus is not playing around here. And in a few minutes, we'll be saying the Lord's Prayer together, as we say every week. What do you think when you say, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us? And when Jesus taught his disciples that prayer, he ended up by saying, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. I will come back to these sayings of Jesus in a minute, but I want to take a couple of minutes looking at my second heading as I've set it out in the sermon outline. Because this is a parable about the abundance of God's love on the one hand and our response on the other. And both are important. We're not likely to end this sermon by saying, isn't God's love wonderful? Wow. Let's go and enjoy life. We're going to say, being a disciple is a costly business. What does it mean for me? What happens when we can become a member of God's family in the first place? Well, we respond to God's love, basically. We are overwhelmed by what he has done for us. And this is true even in the Old Testament. If you look on the back page, there's this wonderful poem by Hosea picturing God's love for the nation, which continually lets, Jesus, lets him down. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called him, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. But listen to this. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms. They did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck, and I bent down to feed them. This is God speaking. 
How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. Last month, 10 members of this congregation were confirmed. They renewed their baptismal vows and they said, I turn to Christ, I repent of my sins, I reject evil. The old prayer book used to refer to this um, as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Wonderful word. There's a stage in every Christian's life when we respond to the love God has shown to us through the grace of Jesus in dying for us in the cross, on the cross. And when we give our lives to him in response and seek his forgiveness as we repent, we trust him for all our future in this world and the next. Now, in spite of what I've said already, I want you to listen carefully to the next bit. When we do that, when God comes to us in Christ and offers us his forgiveness and his love, if we repent and say we are sorry and follow him and continue doing that, he has some promises for us which he will never break. Jesus said to Nicodemus when he got to that stage, you are born again. Paul underlines it by verses which we must be familiar with in this church. By grace you are saved through faith. You have been saved. It's something in the past. It's a perfect tense. It's once for all. It's completed. You are justified, to use the theological language. You can stand before God on judgment day just as if you have never sinned. If anyone is in Christ, Paul said, you are a new creation. You are a child of God. What did Jesus promise to all those who turn to him? He said in John 6, 37, the person who comes to me, I will never cast out. That is a promise which he will keep. And if you want it in even more relevant language, it's over the page. My favorite translation, the message, Jesus said, once that person is with me, I hold on and I never let go. Difficult to misunderstand that, isn't it, really? So you've got to bear that in mind before we come back to what I was talking about, what Jesus was talking about sooner. Once that person is with me, Jesus said, I hold on and won't let go. Now, I I, I have to tell you, I can't look back on my own life and say, on such and such a day, in such and such a place, I said to God, Lord, I'm a sinner, I want to turn to you and put my trust in you and to ask for your forgiveness. I repent, I believe, I will walk with you for the rest of my life. I can't tell you a moment when that happens. Uh, I'm an introvert. My wife is an extrovert. She can tell you the time, the place, the date, when God came to her and said unmistakably, I want you to be my child. And it was a very moving experience for her, which she has always referred to. 
I can't do that, as I say. We, the point is, we can both say that is something where this is a stage which we have reached. We are sure of our salvation because God has promised it to us in Christ. And no matter what we do, our salvation is assured. We shall stand there on judgment day and be able to stand there because what, is, what Jesus has done. But we are not expected to go on through the rest of our lives as if nothing has happened. We are called, Jesus said, to abide in him. And if we abide in him, we should expect to grow more like him every day, every month, every year, every stage of our lives. Some of us try every year just to do a spiritual audit. How much nearer to Christ am I than I was on this day last year? What has changed? It's an uncomfortable experience, I'll tell you. But it's, it's something which should be happening. The older we get, the more we walk in the Christian life, the more Christ-like we should become. And in, that means the more we grasp God's forgiveness... And all this it means we realize our need to forgive as we have been forgiven. If we don't give, uh, live lives which are full of love and forgiveness, that is going to spoil and mar our relationship with God. He's not going to give us up, but it's not going to be the life he'd hoped it was going to be for us. So what does it mean to forgive? I suspect that there are many people here who know just how difficult it is to forgive. We know we have been seriously wronged. There is resentment and bitterness which so easily boils up in our soul as we think back to an experience where that has been true. And those feelings can so easily push everything else out, including our relationship with God. And the more we ponder it and the more we dwell on it, the worse it gets. May I share a personal experience? Towards the end of my professional life, I experienced exactly this. I believed and still do that an injustice had been done to me which blighted my life and that of those nearest and dearest to me for a number of years. Attempts to resolve the breakdown in relationship following the principles set out in the verses just before the passage we're looking at today. There are three stages there. When you've got home, you look at those. We've been through all that, uh, and they'd failed. I felt bitter and resentful, and this bitterness kept invading my soul. It kept souring all my relationships, not least that with God. And I knew I had to, to, to do something about it. And I found myself one night um, in the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield, of all places. There wasn't a play going on. It was a meeting of 1,500 Christian businessmen and women who had gathered together to look about how being a Christian impinges every part of their lives, including their life at work. There was a great Bible teacher speaking that night, a chap called R.T. Kendall, who used to be at Westminster Central Hall. 
And he was talking about Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers and the example that sets to us as to how we can forgive other people. I knew I had to seek God's strength in putting all this behind me. I asked God for his forgiveness and for his help to take away all my bitterness and resentment. And when the call came at the end, just like an altar call, I stood up with dozens of other people about around that hall and said, God, forgive me for my resentment. Take it away. Gradually, he answered my prayer, and the burden of it all began to roll away. I went home, and I shredded all the records and correspondence which had fed my bitterness. And every time I sensed the issue coming back to my mind, I was able to strangle it at birth and put it away. Why? Well, because God had forgiven me so much. And his amazing love for me is so overwhelming that it puts everything else, everyone else, in proportion. So remember what God has forgiven you, how much we owe to him in his death on the cross, in Jesus' death on the cross. Then we can start to pray, forgive us as we forgive. Because God's forgiveness is different from ours. It's, it's connected to, our, to, to forgiveness that we experience, but it's different. We must leave to God the whole issue of justice and the rule of law. They're his problem, not ours. But however precious any human relationship can be, the most important relationship we can ever have is that with our loving Father God. Forgive us as we forgive. Think back to that clip we started with, dear Gordon Wilson. He didn't say he'd forgiven those who'd murdered his daughter, did he? He said he bore them no grudge. And he went on to say on another occasion, only God can forgive in the sense of what will happen to those men. But he knew that for himself, he had to show the same attitude of forgiveness to those men. Some people sometimes say, oh, we've got to forgive and forget. You can't do that. That's most unrealistic. You certainly can't forget for the rest of your life. Think Peter in the, uh, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Come with me to Peter and how he was reacting to Jesus at his point of need. With all the other disciples, he failed Jesus. He went to sleep when Jesus needed him. All the disciples deserted him and fled when Jesus was arrested. True, Peter and John were there in Pilate's hall, but then Peter, so anxious to save his own skin, denied three times that he knew Jesus. And he never went to the cross to support him there. Only John was at the cross of the disciples. And after the resurrection, apart from two appearances on, the two, on Easter Sunday and the Sunday after, to the disciples in the upper room, the next time Jesus met Peter was on that Galilean beach. They'd been fishing all night. They saw Jesus on the, on the beach. They saw that he was cooking breakfast for them. And they came ashore to find him, welcoming him as if nothing had ever been different. 
And as Peter watched Jesus cook that breakfast, he looked at Jesus' hands. He saw in those hands the wounds from the cross. That was how much Jesus had forgiven him. He'd gone to those lengths to forgive him. How would you have felt when Jesus then said to Peter, Peter, I'd like to just wander down the beach and have a word with you. Well, and what did Jesus say? And this just speaks volumes of the love of God. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you, Peter said, full of anguish and grief. And what was Jesus' response? He said, feed my sheep. You're the head of my group of disciples. You're the leader. It is your job to go and live out in the rest of your life what you have learned, not just today, but for the rest of all your life before. Feed my sheep. Show your love, he's saying, by living for me. Don't just say things. Change your life. Allow my love for you to overwhelm you, to share with everyone else. And when we come to Jesus like Peter, deeply conscious of our failing and falling short, Jesus says to us, feed my sheep. Look after each other. Show out there in the needy world what a difference Christ makes to your life because you are forgiven sons and daughters of God. You are distinctive, and you are distinctive because you've been overwhelmed by God's love. How do you know? Because you've come to him empty-handed and told him just how much you've messed up. It's then he can transform your life and make you more like Jesus. And when we talk in our strapline at Holy Trinity about going deeper, this is what we're beginning to be, what we mean. It's not talking about it. It's not even singing about it, however loudly we may do that. But just doing it in his name and for his sake. Tom Wright said that forgiveness is like the air in our lungs. There's only room to inhale the next lungful when you've breathed out the previous one. If you insist on holding it and withholding it, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life they desperately need, you won't be able to take in any more yourself. And you'll suffocate very quickly indeed. Your justification won't be affected. Remember, God, Jesus promised never to let you go. But my goodness, your relationship with him will be affected. Your sanctification will be affected, the growing more holy. You'll be stunted in your spiritual life because your reluctance to forgive is getting in the way. We're called to share our experience of God's forgiveness. 
And if we're aware of the enormity of God's love for us, then we can share that forgiveness with others. If we're willing to forgive others, then we're open to receive God's love and forgiveness. One last story, and then I've finished. Corrie Ten Boom was a lady who suffered incredible injuries, torture, persecution during the Second World War in Holland. And after the war, she met one of the guards who had been instrumental in her, in her torture in the concentration camp. He approached her and asked for her forgiveness. She wrote afterwards, I tried to smile. I struggled to lift my hand. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I lifted my arm and took his hand, an incredible thing happened, she said. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger which almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. And when he tells us to love our enemies, she says, he gives along with the command, the love itself. In a moment, we're going to sing the next hymn. I'd just like to be quiet for a moment before we do that, as I lead you in a prayer. And the next hymn will also be in the form of a prayer. But as we... uh, come to sing the hymn, I'm going to ask you to do something as an act, nothing, nothing too threatening, I do assure you. But if you feel that there is something you want to say to God as a result of this understanding of his huge love for us and our reluctance to share that with other people in forgiveness, then a way of starting to do that would be for us to say the grace together. Maybe, as in the old days, you could turn around and look at each other as you say it. And we will say, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, all his love for us on the cross, and the love of God, all the Father love of God from the time immemorial through to the end of time, and the fellowship which binds us together, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us all evermore. Let's just pray first, and then we'll stand.